Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sports Medcast, brought to you by American Medical Society of Sports Medicine and supported by the British Journal of Sports Medicine. I am your host, Dr. Rathna Nuti, with Sport Orthopedics and Rehabilitation, and privileged to be joined by Dr. Ellen Casey, Associate Attending Physiatrist in the Department of Physiatry and the Women's Sports Medicine Center at the Hospital for Special Surgery. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So in today's segment, we'll be discussing about caring for a pregnant athlete. So let's dive right in. So Dr. Casey, what are some things to consider when caring for a pregnant athlete? You know, what's so interesting in thinking about this podcast over the past few days and getting ready, I realize it's the past decade has really truly been transformative for the pregnant and postpartum athlete. And there's so many examples like Serena Williams winning the Australian Open when she was two months pregnant in 2017 and Allison Felix breaking Usain Bolt's uh, record for the most track and field world championship titles when she was 10 months postpartum. And what's so great about this is not just elite athletes, but women, um, you know, of all types of uh, levels and, and expertise in sports are really exercising more during and after pregnancy. And that's really allowed us to evolve our understanding in how the musculoskeletal and physiological changes that occur with pregnancy and postpartum can change performance and and sports. And so because so many more women are participating, we're able to learn more and more about these important uh, changes that occur with pregnancy. So some of the key musculoskeletal changes of pregnancy to be aware of is as the the fetus and the uterus grow, certainly the center of gravity for, you know, the woman will shift forward. And then there are some compensatory changes in the spine and the rest of the body that go along with that. So the um, head will come forward a little bit, which hyperflexes the lower part of the cervical spine. There's increased extension in the thoracic spine and increased lumbar lordosis. So some of that can change, you know, the spine mechanics and maybe change pain in the spine. The pelvis tilts anteriorly, the um, medial longitudinal arch in the feet flatten out a little bit, so people are a little bit more biased to pes planus. And in addition to that change in the center of gravity, there's some gait changes that occur. So the base of support is a little bit wider, and stability in single leg stance uh, is is not as good as, a, as someone when they aren't pregnant. Um, and, and pregnant women are about two to three times more likely to fall than non-pregnant women. So, you know, the, some of those things, depending on what sport women are, are involved in, may just take additional training or some, you know, different precautions to make sure they're not losing their balance. Muscles change, the length tension relationship of the um, abdominal wall and the pelvic floor musculature will change throughout pregnancy. And then joint stability uh, will change as well. So we know that the um, hormones related to pregnancy, particularly relaxin and estrogen, will increase laxity of ligaments. And the point of that is to get the pelvis ready for uh, vaginal delivery. So there may be increased motion at the pubic symphysis, at the sacroiliac joints, but also this is a systemic process. So if somebody has patellar instability or shoulders that are prone to subluxation episodes, that may occur more commonly during pregnancy too. So those stability type exercises are going to be key for for women uh, in that regard. And then physiologic changes are important to note. So from a cardiovascular standpoint, uh, cardiac output increases up to 30 to 50%, and that's due to increase in heart rate and stroke volume. 
pulmonary changes are as the diaphragm elevates, there's decreased total lung capacity, uh, but there's less sensitivity to carbon carbon dioxide. And so while women might feel more dyspnea at rest, they report less dyspnea at submaximal exercise. So that's a little bit maybe of an advantage of pregnancy and exercise. And one thing that's really interesting is that You know how people use the Borg uh, rate of perceived exertion for exercise to decide how hard they're working. Well, in pregnancy, the RPE is less well correlated with heart rate. So a pregnant woman's heart rate is going to be 15 to 50 beats per minute higher for whatever score she gives herself on the Borg RPE scale. So using a more objective measure like a heart rate monitor is probably a good idea, especially if somebody's really training at high intensity to be able to better characterize how hard they're working. So should a pregnant athlete even be exercising or training? In most cases, the answer is a definitive yes. And in fact, there are just so many benefits to exercise during pregnancy. So from the maternal standpoint, there are things like reduced uh, risk of gestational diabetes and hypertension, uh, reduced risk of preterm labor or having preeclampsia, less low back pain, less depression, less urinary incontinence, shorter labor. I mean, it sounds, of course, like why wouldn't everyone uh, do this? And importantly, too, um, there are some fetal benefits that are that are wonderful. So even the stimuli associated with exercise, like vibration, movement, sound, that has been shown to positively impact fetal development. And there have been no studies to show exercise is you know, at all dangerous for the fetus. So it's a win-win for mom and baby, which is excellent. But, you know, certainly with any pregnancy, um, you want to have, you know, the pregnant athlete talking to their OBGYN about or their sports medicine doctor, whoever they see, you know, about how they're feeling, what and what their health status is to see if they are okay to exercise. Um, So some things to keep in mind in regards to that are, you know, thinking about, you know, just where the where the guidelines have evolved. So, you know, back in the 1980s, the guidelines were really rigid for pregnant women. It was don't exercise more than 15 minutes at a time. Keep your heart rate less than 140 beats per minute. Don't get in a supine position. And, you know, there was a lot of, I think, fear and worry about, you know, not having any problems arise. But fortunately, this has changed and evolved over time. And the most recent recommendations um, out of Canada in 2019 mirror so much more of what we recommend for, you know, non-pregnant adults. So at this point, the thought is all pregnant women should be participating in exercise if healthy. Um, And they should try to accumulate 150 minutes per week, ideally over three or more days during their pregnancy, and really include a variety of aerobic and resistance exercise. So, you know, the recommendations are if there aren't contraindications that women be participating. Wow, that's great. It's great to see how that has changed over the course of time as well. So what are some misconceptions surrounding a pregnant athlete and exercise? I think some of the the misconceptions that are important to kind of highlight are 
um, this idea that if you're not active or doing any, you know, sport before pregnancy, that's not a good time to start being active. And in fact, you know, studies have shown that women make really positive health changes. Some women do during pregnancy. They might change their diet. They might stop smoking. Um, and, and that is a very great time to start to uh, include exercise in, in a woman's, you know, life if she's not doing it previously. Um, you, of course, you want to, like anything, you start new, you know, go gradually and slow. But, you know, I think it's important that, you know, just because you weren't exercising before doesn't mean you can't start during a healthy pregnancy. Um, another misconception is this idea that you can't get your core body temperature too high because that can cause problems for the fetus. And this, uh, this idea came from animal research, which showed if, you know, the animal, usually a rodent model, um, you know, if the core body temperature got too high, there could be teratogenic effects. And the, the cutoff is thought to be about 103 degrees Fahrenheit or 39 degrees Celsius is what is recommended to stay below. And so for a long time, there was some concern about exercise because of that. But British Journal of Sports Medicine in 2019 had a systematic review published by Ravinelli and colleagues, and they looked at 12 studies that showed that basically in no form of exercise on land, submerged in water, or even sitting in a sauna, did women get to a core temperature greater than that 39 degrees. So they weren't at that threshold. And in fact, um, there's this improved thermoregulation in pregnant women to protect the fetus. So they're really able to, you know, tolerate exercise um, much more than was thought previously. So that's really important. Okay, great. So what exercises are actually recommended and what are prohibited um, when it comes to a pregnant athlete? So for the most part, uh, like anybody else, you want to diversify an exercise regimen. So some combination of aerobic exercise as well as resistance exercise, changing the types up so your body doesn't just adjust and get used to that. Um, there is some data to support that pelvic muscle uh, or pelvic floor muscle training, like, for example, Kegel-type exercises can be helpful during and after pregnancy, especially to reduce urinary incontinence. But the evidence is far stronger for just kind of a well-rounded exercise program, even if you don't do the pelvic floor work. Well, that's great. And it's great that it also benefits um, the pelvic floor. I think that's a main concern with a lot of women. So is there any point in time that a pregnant athlete should stop exercising? If so, when can she safely resume? Yeah, so that's getting back to some of these contraindications, um, and there's some absolute and relative contraindications to exercise. I won't read them all. We can certainly reference them. But um, but the absolute contraindications that are important to think about would be having symptoms that are concerning during exercise. So vaginal bleeding, leaking of amniotic fluid, developing contractions, you know, having dizziness or chest pain, those would be signs that something might be going on. Also, if women are diagnosed with some um, some other disorders, like maybe they are known to have an incompetent cervix or have preeclampsia, there may be no exercise in those cases or some modifications, of course, that would need to be it need to be considered. The relative contraindications, obviously, it's a little bit more gray there, but those include things like recurrent pregnancy loss, history of spontaneous preterm birth, gestational hypertension, if there's some sort of eating disorder or malnutrition, 
And twin pregnancy after the 28th week is also in that list of relative contraindications. But actually, interestingly, again, in, in British Journal of Sports Medicine just this month, actually, a systematic review came out that looked at 44 different studies. And it showed that many of these relative contraindications in particular are really based on expert opinion. They're not based on empiric science. And so um, that they really had a kind of a call to action in that paper of, are we limiting people that we shouldn't be? And we need more research to, to solve that. And in fact, some of the studies they reviewed showed that people with gestational hypertension actually improved, you know, their blood pressure control um, and twin pregnancy in, uh, in some of those studies, women did just fine with exercise. So um, I think the exciting thing is we're at a point now, like I said, where more women are exercising and we'll be able to tackle some of these questions so that more people can exercise if it truly is healthy and appropriate. Wow, that's good. And that will definitely open up a lot of doors for women as well. So that's yeah. exciting to hear. Is there any particular medications or supplements that a pregnant athlete should be taking during her pregnancy? So no medications per se um, that, you know, that people need to be taking. Generally speaking, a lot of pregnant women will get recommendations to take iron. Um, some will be recommended to take calcium and vitamin D kind of, um, if, especially if they're planning on um, breastfeeding. So to kind of get that store, those stores of uh, nutrients ready in the bone. But thinking about supplements, of course, just makes you think about just in, in nutritional requirements. And, of, and as women are going through pregnancy, they will have increased uh, caloric demand and that kind of builds upon itself. So, you know, it may be you need an additional 90 to 100 calories in the first trimester and then all the way to the third trimester. Some women need uh, you know, to increase about 500 calories per day. Um, that really depends on what your um, nutrition is like coming into the pregnancy. So an athlete who may be on, you know, sort of the edge of the triad or reds where they're having um, low energy availability will need to eat more um, during a pregnancy, whereas somebody with a BMI that's on the higher side may not need to supplement as much. But really um, thinking about getting the right nutrition, not only for the pregnancy, but whatever athletic demands the, the woman has is really important to think through that and plan for it because it can be hard to change your diet that much, of course, as you're, you know, you're going through the pregnancy. Absolutely. So any special medical evaluations that should be assessed by either the OBGYN or sports medicine physician besides the overall care of the pregnancy itself? Usually it's the overall care, and I would certainly encourage any pregnant woman, particularly if somebody's interested in staying phys very physically active or maintaining a sport and some type of training during pregnancy, they'll want to discuss that with their OBGYN just so that their, you know, physician is, is on board and understands what type of activity they're doing. But if no problems arise, then generally speaking, there's no reason to um, add an additional healthcare provider in. Certainly if pain develops or they're concerned concerns or questions about how to modify training, then there are, you know, uh, wonderful exercise physiologists, physical therapists, sports medicine physicians who have a real passion and expertise in this area, and they can be very valuable too. Oh, awesome. So what are some common barriers to exercise in pregnant athletes, like in reference to like lumbopelvic pain and fatigue, um, 
what other things that are there? Well, those are two of the big ones, certainly. I think energy level fatigue, which of course, you know, depending on what type, what time period in the pregnancy and how the individual is feeling, that can be, um, that can be a barrier. If they have other children, time and, you know, um, having, uh, you know, having the ability to exercise um, can, can be a challenge of scheduling. But pain certainly is one of the things that is important to, I think, address early and hopefully give people tools to deal with because um, that's something that, you know, if we can minimize that, then they'll be able to be more active. So in pregnancy, most common type of pain that people will come in with will be um, what we consider low back and pelvic girdle pain. Collectively, lumbopelvic pain of pregnancy is another term for that. And so, you know, the good news, though, is that there have been some studies, including one by Heidi Prather and Deviani Hunt in 2005 that showed that runners who maintained their running during pregnancy had a lower prevalence of low back pain and pelvic girdle pain than women who did not. Um, There were some women in each of those groups that had pain, but it certainly doesn't seem like exercise makes that worse. And in many cases, it probably reduces the risk or the severity of, of pelvic girdle and low back pain. Got it. So what are some things to consider when returning to sports or exercise after delivery? That's a big question I know most women have. Yeah, and it's really interesting because as it, you know, you, you look at the literature for exercise and sports and pregnancy and we think, well, we don't have a lot of data here. And then you look at the postpartum phase and you realize, oh my, we have even less data there. And so it is more of a gray area for people. And what's so interesting is that there's not even consensus on what is the what how long the postpartum phase lasts. So most people think of it as kind of the eight to twelve weeks after pregnancy. Even consider that like the fourth trimester, not only for the infant who's still figuring things out, of course, and developing, but also you know the the postpartum woman. Um, but others suggest that the postpartum phase really lasts for the duration of breastfeeding, and that certainly can be variable in the twelve to eighteen months, but even longer range sometimes. So this phase is nebulous, and then the guidance is pretty nebulous. And what's challenging, of course, is that if you Google, you know, postpartum or turn to exercise or try to inform yourself um, as a layperson, you get so many mixed messages and misinformation and the pressure, societal pressure, personal pressure, especially I think in in athletes to return to the pre-baby body is quite intense. And it's unfortunately, you know, again, we're not basing this on science, we're basing it on celebrities or or something like that. And so it it can be a real challenge. Um, But so basically, most women in this country will have a visit with their OBGYN about six weeks after delivery, sometimes sooner or longer, depending on, you know, C-section versus vaginal delivery. But the six weeks is pretty average. And at that time, for the most part, the OBGYN will, you know, do an exam, ask some questions, and oftentimes will say, okay, you're, you're cleared to return to exercise. But, I mean, we wouldn't, you know, the sports medicine community wouldn't do that with any other musculoskeletal event. And I would argue that pregnancy is indeed a musculoskeletal event. Of course, it's reproductive as well. But there are so many changes that occur to the musculoskeletal system, to our physiology, that just saying like, yeah, go ahead back and good luck with that. I think we're doing a huge disservice to women. Um, but the challenge is we don't have a lot of data to guide that, that area right now. 
There are some women who return to sport and exercise prior to the six weeks, you know, and, and then some women take a lot longer. And I will say I'm biased because the women I see in my practice will come in when they've been cleared. They try to go run again or play soccer or, you know, swim or whatever that is. And, and they're coming to see me because they have pain or they're having issues. Um, so I'm sure there are plenty of people that do it beautifully. But we don't, unfortunately, have a good return to play um, postpartum, which, you know, certainly is, is something that I hope and I know a lot of other people are working on this and, and would, would imagine that could happen in the future. You know, so that's an area that I think we need to understand a lot better. But ideally, there'd be some type of physical assessment you know, can you, um, if for return to running, for example, can you stand on one leg, do a single leg squat with appropriate mechanics? Do you have, you know, so do you have the right, like core stability to run? Do you have basic endurance that you're building up? Um, are you doing some sort of prehab or, you know, exercises to get ready to do that would be really, I think that where we need to go in the future for postpartum women. Got it. So what are some of the barriers to exercise in postpartum women themselves? Yeah, so one of the things that comes up um, is pain, like we've talked about. Um, the other is uh, some, something that people come to see me about is uh, basically a, what's called a rectus diastasis or a separation of the abdominal wall. So, you know, as you know, the rectus abdominis uh, muscles are connected by a fascial plane called the linea alba. And as the fetus grows and, the, you know, you change in sort of the dynamics of the abdominal wall, the muscles stretch themselves and there can be stretching or tearing of the linea alba. So you don't have that same type of connection to the rectus abdominis musculature. And there have been studies that look at like basically a hundred percent of pregnant women have a separation because how can you not the, you know, this, this, um, you know, fetus has to go somewhere. And then, in like the four to six weeks postpartum, the numbers are about 50% still have a separation. And then at six months postpartum, almost 40% of women will still have that separation. Now, the definition of the diastasis, like how far separated does it, do you have to be to have a diastasis, there's a little debate in the literature about that. If it's done just by palpation and using, you know, the exam, oftentimes you think about, you know, two or more finger breadths of a separation there. But more recently, many of us um, are using musculoskeletal ultrasound to measure the interrectus distance. Um, and most studies say that the cutoff is 2.5 centimeters or greater. Um, and there can be differences in the separation above the umbilicus and below because the tissue planes are a little bit different. It's it's more common to have a separation above, but you know, so those are there's how you decide if someone has this. Most women will already know they have it when they come in um, because they will have noticed more of like a bulging um, in their abdomen, or they feel like you know, I had the baby six months ago and I still feel like I look pregnant. Um, they may also notice, like a, notice a tenting or outpouching of the abdominal wall when they're doing something like a plank or a sit-up that increases intra-abdominal pressure. Um, so oftentimes, you know, they know that they have some separation 
And the reason that this is important is not only cosmetically it's distressing to people, which is certainly understandable, but the abdominal wall we know is very important for spine stability and health. The rectus abdominis and the pelvic floor and transversus abdominis all work, you know, synergistically to maintain continence um, and support pelvic organs. So, um, you know, that's that can be if you have a, a separation, it can be a risk factor for a back pain as well as you know urinary incontinence. So there are some um, you know medical potential issues that go along with it. And like getting back to exercise after pregnancy, there's a lot of conflicting data if you look this up. And so, you know, of the studies that are out there that are are decent, and there are only a few, it does seem like core strengthening, particularly focused on uh, transversus abdominis, is a useful tool to try to bring the rectus abdominis back together. The challenge is, you know, again, knowing like what somebody's interrectus distance was ahead of time, um, because there's probably a lot of individual variation to that. So women want to see it kind of close completely, but we don't know where people started. And, and, you know, some of that is probably never going to fully close, but to be able to train the muscles to come together during some type of bracing or abdominal contraction is really important. Awesome. What are some of the reasons um, postpartum women develop urinary incontinence during sports or exercise? Can anything be done about it? Yeah. So kind of like we were talking about with the um, rectus diastasis, so urinary incontinence, most often stress incontinence, meaning um, leaking of urine when there's an increase in intra-abdominal and intrapelvic pressure, so with laughing, sneezing, running, jumping, that type of incontinence is one of the most common pelvic floor you know, muscle dysfunctions after pregnancy. And certainly there can be, um, you know, you might be more likely to have it with uh, certain certain issues, you know, and tearing with a vaginal delivery, for example, but you know, it, it can happen during and after pregnancy. And the numbers and studies would suggest that it's like 15 to 30 percent of women in the first year after pregnancy, and some will have this for quite some time. There doesn't appear to be a difference in women who are um, athletic or exercising versus not. So the good news is sports doesn't seem to make this worse. I will say, though, we all know in sports medicine that there are some women who have never had, uh, you know, a pregnancy or had a baby that do have stress urinary incontinence, like trampolinists and gymnasts, you know, high impact athletes even without pregnancy, can have this. And as we talked about earlier, some of the more recent guidelines are recommending pelvic floor muscle strengthening exercises um, like Kegels to try to prevent urinary incontinence and then treat it if it appears. But one thing I would like to say that is really important is that Before saying to uh, a postpartum woman, you know, hey, do Kegels, it's really critical that they do have a pelvic floor muscle evaluation by a trained physical therapist or a sports medicine physician who has that expertise. Um, Because, you know, just like we would evaluate a shoulder or a knee or a hip, we wouldn't just say, oh, this is what you described, this is what you have, go to therapy, we're going to examine it and prescribe rehabilitation exercises based on our findings. And it's the same thing with the pelvic floor, because you can have a weak 
pelvic floor, or you can have a overactive, really kind of, you know, overly contracting pelvic floor. And in that case, a Kegel exercise is going to be counterproductive because what those women need to learn to do is to relax the pelvic floor and to do sort of coordination and neuromuscular training rather than just get it stronger. And so that evaluation piece is really important to do just like we do with everything else in sports medicine. But fortunately, exercises can be very, very helpful for urinary incontinence and, um, you know, are pretty easy for people to learn and continue to do. Awesome. So kind of our last question, um, what do we know about breastfeeding and sports participation? So the good news is that there's no evidence that exercise or sports impair milk production or cause any issue in like the quality of the milk or the nutritional content, you know, that's fine. There have been studies looking at, you know, can runners and other athletes, you know, breastfeed and, and it seems to be not an issue. Sometimes it takes a little bit more sort of planning if there's pumping involved and the timing of that, um, wearing appropriate sports bras and oftentimes women might nurse or pump before exercise um, to try to just be more comfortable. Um, but, you know, it certainly can be, it's doable. And if that's the choice that's best for the, the mother and the baby, then, then it, you know, that shouldn't be an issue doing it with sports. One thing though, that I think sports medicine um, providers and spe- specifically physicians should keep in mind is that if you have, let's say, a postpartum runner who is breastfeeding, your suspicion for a, th- a stress fracture or bone stress injury should be that much higher because, as we know, um, you know the bones are just losing calcium uh, at a much higher rate, right, during breastfeeding, and so um, that's important to account for. So during breastfeeding, women lose four to ten percent of their bone mass in six months. Just to put that in perspective. After menopause, women lose about 4% of bone mass per year, 5 to 10 years after menopause. So that's a big amount of bone mass to lose in a short amount of time. And it tends to be, you know, the loss is, is higher in the lumbar spine, the sacrum, um, in areas where certainly runners can get bone stress injuries anyway. So it's very important to keep that in mind and also thinking about the nutritional. Um, we talked about increasing nutrition during pregnancy, but that if, you're, if your breastfeeding needs to be maintained and taken into account with your training because you can slip easily into inadvertent low energy availability as well, and that with the breastfeeding on top of it you know, could set someone up for a bone stress injury. And I will say certainly that there are a number of case reports of sacred bone stress injuries in postpartum women, I've certainly seen them in my practice. So um, that's important to keep in mind. Um, More rare, but transient osteoporosis of pregnancy and even in the postpartum breastfeeding phase can can be an issue. And so um, that's one more reason to keep, you know, bone stress injuries at the top of your list if someone comes in with pain that fits that description. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for your time and sharing your expertise on this topic with us today, Dr. Casey. I would like to I would like to thank our listeners for joining us today and hope that you found this podcast educational and that you will join us again soon for the next edition of the AMSSM Sports Medcast.